Let's pray together. Father, we bow our heads, and here we are, and here your word is, and we trust by faith here you are and your Holy Spirit is. So come now and speak to us and help us to listen. I ask that you would help take this stuff that's been prepared and free my mouth to say all that you would have me to say and constrain my mouth so that it might say only what you want to be said. And please help us to hear and perceive and think after you these thoughts so that our lives might be better off for it and we might be drawn closer to you. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the fourth century, a man named Eutropius had fallen from power. Till then, his was a real rags-to-riches kind of story. Eutropius was formerly a slave who had risen to become second in the empire, the highest-ranking official, the closest advisor to the emperor himself. But Eutropius had abused his power and made enemies, chief of which was the emperor's own wife. And so, this man, who was once at the pinnacle of power, who once had everything that you could want to have in life, now found himself stripped of his position, robbed of his titles, his lands confiscated, and a sentence of death on his head. Desperate to save his life, Eutropius escaped from the palace. He fled, and with nowhere to run and nowhere to hide, sort of disheveled with dust in his hair and tears in his eyes, running for his life, he ran into a church sanctuary to just find exactly that, sanctuary. And he slipped past the curtain and he clung to a column of the altar. And there he, sniveling and sober, crying and desperate for his life, he clung to that altar, hoping to find refuge, hoping to find asylum. Soon enough, there was an army of guards and soldiers around, screaming out for Eutropius, calling for him to be handed over, calling for him to be executed and put to death. However, that day, respecting the sanctity of the sanctuary, no one barged in, and instead, soon enough, the crowd dispersed, but they came back the next day because the next day happened to be Sunday morning. And as you can imagine, word had spread throughout the city, and the church was filled with people, everyone who had come to see what would happen. What would especially the preacher and pastor say of this whole spectacle and scene? And so the pews were full, everyone sitting at the edge of their seat. Now the pastor and preacher of this particular church happened to be a man named John Chrysostom. And if you've ever heard that name, it's because he was one of the early church fathers. And everyone had come to hear Chrysostom speak. In fact, that name means golden mouth. And that's because he was known to be such a great orator, such a skilled speaker. So the church is full and everyone's sitting at the edge of their seat. And yet no one was prepared for what they saw when the curtain was thrown open. And there they saw miserable Eutropius clinging to the altar, tears running down his face, shaking as it were, teeth chattering. And Chrysostom climbed into his pulpit, he opened his Bible, and the text of his sermon that morning was Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And here's how his sermon began. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is always seasonable to utter this, but especially at the present time. And then speaking of Eutropius and to Eutropius as the main illustration of his entire sermon, he said, Where are now the brilliant surroundings of your consulship? 
Where is the dancing and the noise of dancers' feet and the banquets and the festivals? Where are the garlands and the curtains of the theater? Where is the applause which greeted you in the city? Where the acclamation in the hippodrome and the flatteries of spectators? They are gone, all gone. A wind has blown upon a tree, shattering down all its leaves and showing it uh, to us quite bare. Where are now your rained friends? Where are your drinking parties and your suppers? Where is the swarm of parasites and the wine which used to be poured forth all day long and the manifold dainties invented by your cooks? Where are they who courted your power and did and said everything to win your favor? They were all mere visions of the night and dreams which have vanished with the dawn of day. They were spring flowers, and when the spring was over, they all withered. They were a shadow which has passed away. They were smoke which has dispersed, bubbles which have burst, cobwebs which have been rent in pieces. Therefore, we chant continually this spiritual song, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if you hear that and can appreciate that, you can hear why he was called the golden mouth preacher. And dramatically and excellently that morning, Christosom's aim in this sermon was not ultimately to condemn Eutropius. In fact, as he went on, if you read the sermon, he pleaded with his congregation to have mercy and pity on this man. No, his aim was rather to save Eutropius and moreover, even his congregation, his hearers, to wake them up to the reality that the things of life that presently seem so solid and so permanent and so invincible, in fact, are not. And that in the end, when a man faces judgment as all men will, the only hope is to cling to Christ like Eutropius clung to that altar. Now, the sermon must have hit its mark. It must have been effective because halfway down towards the end, Christosom himself could see the faces of his congregation begin to melt. That eyes were turned towards Eutropius with pity and tears began to run down people's cheeks because the message of Ecclesiastes had been preached and moreover had been heard and its message had been received and the hearts of the people were moved one inch closer to Christ. Well, Seven Mile Road, our hope in this season is that what the preaching of the message of Ecclesiastes did then is what it would do even among us now. That as this message is preached, you would hear, and it would do in your hearts what it did to the hearts of the people in the empire that day. It would move your hearts, waking you up to the reality of which that which seems invincible of this world and causing you to cling even more towards Christ. So, we are going to give ourselves this fall to this book, preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. As we do that, let me say something as we start. Ecclesiastes is an intimidating book, a hard book. In fact, I would tell you that just about any book we get ready to preach here at church intimidates me, never more so than this book of Ecclesiastes. This one is the most intimidating book I think we have ever tried to read through and preach here. And if you've ever read through Ecclesiastes, you know why I would say that, and you know what I mean. 
In fact, just this week, I was upstairs in the office with Binu and Sibi, the two other pastors of the church, and we just wanted to read through Ecclesiastes together in one sitting, just 1 to 12. We got to about chapter 6 when Sibi stopped us, no joke, in the middle and said, I'm so tired, right? Just exhausted from having just read through a book. We didn't run laps. We didn't do anything. Just from reading and trying to understand all that Ecclesiastes was saying, you feel drained and exhausted through this book. If you read through it, you'll see that it can be confusing at times. It can sound contradictory where it's saying one thing here and another thing there. And if you heard the tone, just even as John read it for us in just chapter 1 alone, you can hear that the tone of this book can be dark and depressing and bleak and sometimes feel pessimistic and hopeless. Ecclesiastes, you should know, is a hard book. Now that's true and it's over here. At the same time, I want to say over here, as I have been reading Ecclesiastes and studying through this book, I want you to know there has been this growing excitement, at least in my own heart, that I can't wait for us to consider this book together, to study it together. In fact, this is a book I'm convinced more than ever that we need. In fact, if you're here and you're new to church, new to Christianity, new to Jesus or the Bible, I'm especially excited for you. For example, if you're here because a friend invited you to come, or you're here just because you're sort of checking out what church or religion or God, how that might fit into your life, I want you to know I'm especially excited for you because unlike some of the other books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes requires no previous knowledge of the Bible for you to jump in, for you to understand it and read it. For example, there's a lot of other books of the Bible. If you're going to read it, you've got to know some background stuff of who this person is and that person is and what this event is referring to and what does this word mean. Whereas for Ecclesiastes, it's different. The starting line for Ecclesiastes isn't that you're biblically knowledgeable. It's not that you're particularly spiritual or religious. It's not that you believe a certain number of things. It's not even that you're a Christian. The starting line for Ecclesiastes, the common denominator, is just that you're a human being who lives on this planet under the sun like the rest of us. And if you're a human being who lives under the sun on this planet like the rest of us, you can read Ecclesiastes and you'll find you can relate to the author's observations about life. You can relate to what he says about life because any human being can relate to what he says about life. If you would give Ecclesiastes a chance... I think you'll find that it's a brutally honest book, meaning it gives you no pat answers to the problems of life, no empty religious platitudes, no sentimental sayings. It's too honest and too raw for that. This is why even folks who would consider themselves not religious, agnostic, for example, for example, the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, he said the truest of all books is Ecclesiastes. In fact, those who would not consider themselves religious have praised this book because of its honesty, because of its insight into life as we know it, life under the sun. It may be helpful for you also to know, just as a bit of background as we jump into this book, that Ecclesiastes is lumped together with a few other books in our Bible to form a category that's called wisdom literature. For example, there's other books like Proverbs or Job. Sometimes added into that list is Song of Solomon and Psalms. Uh, these books together form together what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. And the idea is if you read these books, it'll give you a vision for how to live wisely and well in this world. 
If you want to live wisely, if you want to live well, if you want to have a successful life, then read these books. These books give you a, a vision for how to life, live life with wisdom. So, for example, if you take the book of Proverbs, if you turned left from Ecclesiastes 1 and just looked down on your page, you'd find the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is a book full of basically a vision for how to live life well. Here's the good life. And so as you read through Proverbs, you'll find that it has all kinds of practical advice, practical counsel and advice about work and how to think about family and how to think about marriage and how to live this life well. And so the book of Proverbs, if you read it, is filled with all kinds of principles that are generally true about life. Don't miss that. Proverbs is filled with all kinds of principles that are generally true for life, saying, if you keep this in mind, you'll live well. So for example, Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10 will say things like, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be overbursting, overflowing with wine. Proverbs is saying, listen, there's a general principle to life. You'll reap what you sow. If you sow generously to the Lord, you'll reap from the Lord. And so there's a, a cause and effect. There's a way to understand and live this life well. Well, Proverbs will say in 13 verse 21, disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Meaning there's a general principle. You want to live wisely? Look, if you live in the wrong, wrong is definitely what you're going to get. But if you live in the right, the righteous are rewarded with good. There's a basic principle to how the world works. Proverbs will say things like, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right? That's Proverbs. Well, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is like the kid in the class who always raises his hand and says, yes, but. Right? That, that kid that's always going, yes, that's true, but there's something else for you to consider. That's Ecclesiastes. For example, if, if Proverbs was going to teach you how to spell, Proverbs would say, here's what you should know. I comes before E. And Proverbs would say, if you memorize that rule, you'll be able to spell lots of words. You can spell believe and achieve and any number of words. Just remember when you're spelling, I comes before E. And it, what would Ecclesiastes do? Ecclesiastes would raise its hand and go, yes, but, right, I comes before E, except after C, and sometimes Y, and sometimes word that have an A, like neighbor and way. That's the full sentence of the saying, by the way, right? So, so this is what Ecclesiastes does. Ecclesiastes is always going, yes, that's true, except for when it's not true. Ecclesiastes will say, yes, Proverbs, it's true. Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, and your wine will be flowing over, your barns will be bursting, except for the fact that sometimes you'll be generous and still be flat broke, because that happens in the world too. Proverbs will say, listen, the righteous are rewarded with good, the wicked meet disaster. And Ecclesiastes would say, yes, except for the times when the wicked go scotch-free and the righteous are kicked in the mouth, because that happens in the world too. Proverbs would say, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And Ecclesiastes will say, Except for the times when you train up a child and they will depart from everything you've taught and make a mess of their life and reject everything you've ever said. Because in this life, that happens too. You see, Ecclesiastes is aware that life is a bit more complicated and messy. Uh, one, one person, one author named Zach Eswine, he said it like this. He said, if Proverbs is like meteorology, 
giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love and wisdom still dies like a beast or like a fool. That's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is saying, listen, life under the sun isn't one rule fits all. It's messier than that. There's contradictions and complexities. And the author of Ecclesiastes is perfectly fine with having you stare at all of them. He's not going to give you empty religious platitudes. He's not going to give you pat answers to the problems of life. There are no hallmark sayings here. He's going to have you stare at life brutally and honestly with rawness and see that this life under the sun is full of complexities and contradictions that make it hard to figure out what life is. This is what the author is doing. Now, speaking of the author, we've mentioned him a bunch of times. Who is the author of Ecclesiastes? Let's meet him. We meet him in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, turn it open there. It's page 553. In the very first words, you'll meet him. Here's what it says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So if you were to ask, who is the author of Ecclesiastes? Well, strictly speaking, Ecclesiastes is anonymous, meaning you don't get a name here. You, you simply are introduced to, here's the preacher. In some of your translations, it'll say, here's the teacher. Basically, it's a word that means, here's someone who assembles or gathers God's people and speaks to them, gives them wisdom, sort of like a, a sermon. So if you gather all God's people, somebody's going to stand up and he's going to speak. Here's what the preacher is saying. Ecclesiastes, in some way, is one long sermon from this preacher. We don't know exactly who he is. Now, traditionally, Christians have understood that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Right? That it was written by Solomon, or at the very least, it's Solomonic, meaning it sounds like Solomon. It, it smells like Solomon. You're supposed to be thinking of Solomon as you read Ecclesiastes. Now, why? You see it here in verse 1. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. We know that's exactly who Solomon was. He was a son of David. He was king in Jerusalem. Moreover, if you look down to verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is under heaven. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has experienced great wisdom and knowledge. Right? That's what he says. If you keep reading, you'll get to chapter 12. You'll see that this preacher has accumulated lots of proverbs. So as you read Ecclesiastes, here's what you come to see. This preacher is a man of unparalleled wisdom. It's a man of unparalleled power. It's a man of unparalleled wealth and fame. And so it's fair to say, as you're reading Ecclesiastes, this book wants you to be thinking of Solomon. Now, we'll say more about Solomon next week, but here's just what I want you to know about him for today. Solomon is a man who has had more money, more power, more pleasure, more fame, more achievements, and more accomplishments in a week than you will have in a lifetime. That's not exaggeration. That's not overspeak. I want you to hear that. Solomon is a man who has had more wealth and power and pleasure and fame and achievements and accomplishments 
in a week than we will in a lifetime. He had whatever he wanted to have. He did whatever he wanted to do. Anything he thought of, he could do and have. And at the conclusion of doing everything he wanted to do, here's what Solomon says, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Pointless, pointless. Everything is utterly pointless. Futility, futility. Everything is totally futile. Smoke, smoke. It's all just smoke. That's the opening line to the preacher's sermon. The word that's being repeated over and over again is this Hebrew word, hevel. And you're going to see that word over and over again. It appears some 38 times in just these 12 chapters. You can imagine how often you're going to run into this word. And this word quite literally just means sort of vapor or wind or smoke. You think of smoke, you can see it. It seems almost solid, but if you go to grasp it, it, it evades you. It's elusive. It's fleeting. You can't control it. You can't grab it. You can't channel it. And, and Solomon's saying that's what life is like. That's what human existence is like. It's empty and it's fleeting and it's ephemeral. It's here and then it's gone. You can try to catch it, but it's like trying to catch the wind. If I tried to catch the wind, I could grab a fistful and yet have nothing. There's nothing. That's what life is. It's empty. Human existence is smoke. It's nothing. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, clearly, Solomon wrote this on a Monday morning, right? He has a bad case of the Mondays here, but it doesn't stop because look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I want you to know it's not a real question. It's a rhetorical one. He doesn't need you to answer because for 12 chapters, he's going to answer. And he's going to give you 12 chapters to tell you the answer is nothing. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon's answer, which you'll find in chapter 12, is it's all for nothing. Meaning Solomon surveys all that man does, all that man pursues, all that man seeks to find satisfaction and meaning in life, and he chases it all down, and he says, it's nothing. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's hevel. Everything under the sun. And that's another phrase you're going to see over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Everything that Solomon says is about life under the sun, meaning Life here, as it can be seen, as it can be heard and touched and tasted and felt. Life as it can be observed. Meaning, everything that you can make of life using your five senses. If life under the sun, everything that can be naturally understood, everything that your five senses can engage, if life is seen by what you can see and what you can touch and taste and smell and hear, if life is all this under the sun, is what we can see, what our five senses tell us, Solomon's conclusion is, it's all meaningless. It's empty. It's smoke. It's nothing. This is all that there is to explaining life under the sun. Now listen, you can deceive yourself from that. You can distract yourself from that. But Solomon's not going to let you because for 12 chapters now, he's going to prove that point to you. 
And here's how he begins. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Let's pause there for a sec. I wanted to call this sermon series Making Sisyphus Smile. But because we're in a plurality of elders, I got voted down, and Binu and Sibi said that that was stupid. So we came up with the creative title of Ecclesiastes for a sermon series on Ecclesiastes, right? So, but do you remember Sisyphus? Sisyphus was the mythological man who was condemned by the gods. And what was Sisyphus's punishment? He had to take this huge boulder, and he had to roll it up this steep hill. And so with great energy and toiling and striving and breaking his sweat, he would roll it up to the top of the hill. And just as soon as he got to the top of the hill, it would roll back down. And there Sisyphus would be at the bottom of the hill. And so he'd roll this boulder up the hill. And just as he got to the top, it would roll back down. And there Sisyphus would be at the bottom. And so he would roll this boulder up to the top. And then it would roll back down. And then Sisyphus would, and you would by this point go, please stop describing it. It's torture. And that's the point. Sisyphus was tortured for eternity, doing this meaningless thing. Always doing it, never accomplishing it, and yet always doing it, and never accomplishing it, over and over and over again. If you saw Sisyphus, you would say, what a tragic figure. You would say, what a pity. You know what you would say? You would say, meaningless, meaningless. It's totally meaningless. You would look at Sisyphus and you'd say, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. And yet Solomon here wants to say, wait, look around, because everything under the sun seems to be cursed with the same meaningless, vain repetition. Solomon would say, you tell me, what is the difference between Sisyphus and the sun? Because if you look at the sun, it rises and then it races to set and then it runs back to the place where it rises and does it again. And then it sets and runs back to the place where it rises and does it again and again and again. Always running, always hastening, never going anywhere, as it always does. Solomon would say, tell me, what is the difference between Sisyphus and the streams and the waters and the oceans? Have you ever stood by a stream? It's always flowing, always flowing towards the seas. And yet the seas never get filled. Always flowing, never filling, yet always flowing and never filling. This is what the streams do. This is what the oceans do. What's the difference between Sisyphus and anything you observe under the sun? But listen, Solomon's point isn't to make an observation about nature. He wants to talk about you. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. His point is to drive it to you. He's saying, look, you're as endless and bottomless as the ocean. You'll see and keep on seeing, but never be satisfied with seeing. You'll hear and hear, but never be satisfied with hearing. You have appetites and longings and cravings that nothing can ever fill. Listen, that insecurity in your soul. How many compliments can you receive before it goes away? before it comes back up and bubbles to the surface and another one is needed? What appetite do you have? What longing or craving do you have that's ever been done? Have you ever seen and said it's enough? Or listened and said I'm done? 
You're like the ocean. You're like the streams. You're like sun. This is your lot as well. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. If there is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in ages before us. You see, Solomon is not trying to comment about nature. He's trying to get you to see, here's the real tragedy. You're Sisyphus. You just don't know it. You're Sisyphus. You're stuck. And listen, tell me this isn't true. Dishes are washed only to wash them again. And beds are made only to make them again. And bodies are bathed only to bathe them again. And lawn is mowed only to mow it again. And hair is cut only to cut it again. And bills are paid only to cut them again and pay them again. Right? This is the way the world is. It's on this endless repeat cycle. I mean, you think of this. Is there anything in the world more Sisyphus-like than laundry? You think of that. I've heard laments from Shainu enough to tell you. You wash and fold, and just about the time you're ready to put it away, there's more to wash, which you fold to put it away, and before you know it, there's more to wash. I mean, I can imagine you standing. Would you not buy a pile of laundry this week and go, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity, right? It never stops. Or I can tell you as a preacher, I worked all week to preach this sermon to you. And do you know that by the time I sit down there, the clock starts, and I have another one to go by next Sunday. I mean, I will barely have sat before the clock starts again. And Sundays have this routine of coming every seven days. You will preach sermons only to preach them again. You will plant churches only to plant them again. Everything you do is stuck in this repeat. You're Sisyphus. You just don't know it. Or one pastor said, you think of all of us. Tomorrow morning, the alarm will go off. And you'll wake up. And you'll shower and you'll get dressed. And you'll probably eat the same thing you always eat for breakfast or you're the type that doesn't eat breakfast. And so you won't eat breakfast just like you always don't. And then you will go wherever it is you will always go, whether that to be to work or to school or to stay at home with the kids. And then you will do what you always do. And you'll do that till about noon. And then you will take a break and you'll go to lunch. And you might try something new, but more than likely you'll go to the same place you've already been and eat food you've already eaten before. And then when that's done, you'll go to Starbucks and you'll order the same drink you always order. And then you'll work again till about five or six and you'll sit in the same traffic you always sit in. And you'll come home and you'll eat dinner. And when it's done, you'll watch shows you've already watched and then you'll go to bed. And then the alarm will go off on Tuesday morning. Same alarm, same routine, same route to work, same lunch, same work, same friends, same traffic, same TV shows, same bed, and guess what waits for you on Wednesday? And then Thursday, and Friday, and before you know it, 40 years pass by. This is Solomon's point. You're Sisyphus. You see, it's one pastor said, your life is a lot more like the movie Groundhog Day than you'd like to admit. You're Sisyphus. And, and here's the worst part. It's not just that your days are stuck on repeat, but rather that a whole lifetime will go by before you know it. Listen, friends, you just have to talk to your parents, to anyone who's elderly, and they'll tell you it goes like that. 
And the point is, you will look up when you're elderly, finally rising your eyes from all the toil at which you've been toiling under the sun. And at that moment, you'll turn your head over your shoulder and you'll look back and you'll ask this haunting question. What was the point? What was all that about? What has been gained? What has been accomplished? What did all that toil under the sun amount to? In fact, what is there to even show for your existence? Solomon says, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Meaning life is like a treadmill. You get on, you run for a while, and there's a lot of movement, but no progress. That's what life is like. It's all the same, and the earth remains totally unaffected and unchanged because you were here. And that's what generations before you did, and that's what generations after you will do. Generations will rise, and as one rises, another is declining. As one is born, another is dying. They'll ebb and flow like the waters that ebb and flow on and on and over and over. It will go, and the earth will remain unchanged, unaffected by you being here. Have you ever gotten there? Have you ever gotten to the point where you begin to ask, what is the point? What is all of this about? Like, what is gained from all of this? Have you ever gotten to the point where the mundaneness and the routineness and the repetition is gnawing at you and getting to you? I talked to someone just this week. Just this week, to talk to someone who was lamenting to me how they had all these dreams for life in high school and college, all the things they were going to do, all the things they were going to accomplish. And now here they find themselves in middle age. And let me tell you, this person has a wonderful life, married to a wonderful person and children and all the rest, a wonderful life that they enjoy. And yet, this person told me, at the end of the day, it feels like the most exciting thing in life right now is what color to paint the curtains or pick the curtains or paint the front door. And, and can you hear that gnawing question? Tell me life is more than the color of curtains or the front door. Please tell me that this repetition under the sun amounts to more than what color to paint the front door. In fact, this person wrote to me, quote, falling into the mundane is driving me nuts. That's Solomon's point. What is all this striving and toiling under the sun about? Let me read you a quote from a song by Pink Floyd. This is what Pink Floyd said. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up again behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. I think Solomon would have listened to Pink Floyd, right? Because Solomon would say, listen, you're going to eventually die, and when you do, the sun is going to come up the next morning just like it always does. And it'll race down to set and do it again. And the streams will keep flowing into the sea but never fill. And the universe will go on and the universe won't even notice you're missing. There is no thought of you in life under the sun after your time is done. With the exception of a stone by your grave with your name on it, there will hardly even be any evidence on the planet you were even here. This is life under the sun. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Now listen, we want to protest. We want to say, no, 
I will be different. I will be different. I will be the exception. I will stand out. I will do in work or accomplish in my career or build a family or a legacy or a name or fame or wealth. I will do it in a way that I will last and I will endure and I will be remembered and I will be significant. I will matter. The earth won't forget me that fast. And Solomon would say, verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things nor will be there any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Solomon says, the truth is, you can deceive yourself, you can distract yourself, but the truth is, I think it'll take two, maybe three generations at the most for there to be any memory of you at all on the planet, in the universe. Let me ask you, how many of you know the name of your great-great-great-grandfather? How many of you know the name of your great-great-grandfather? I think it'll take two, maybe three generations at the most before your own descendants don't even know your name. Don't even know that you were here, that you existed. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity, Solomon says. Smoke. Smoke. It's all smoke. And listen, this is chapter 1. There's 12 chapters. And as you keep reading through Ecclesiastes, Solomon will not relent in making you see life. He won't let you turn your face. He's going to have you stare at it and say, there are some inescapable realities to life. We met one of them in chapter 1, time. He's going to make a point throughout this book, as he's done already. Listen, time is eventually bigger than you. It will win. You will lose. And time will win so much so that time will eventually reduce who you are and all that you had to the past tense. That's what time will do. It will beat you so much, you will be past tense. You will go from an am to a was, from a have to a had. Time will win. And if it's not time, Solomon will later in the book introduce chance. Our theology might even not be comfortable saying chance in life, but Solomon's comfortable with it. And Solomon says, look, if you look at life under the sun, if you observe it with these five senses, it seems like there's a whole bunch of randomness everywhere. Proverbs can say that if you do this, then you can expect that. But as I observe life under the sun, it seems random. It doesn't seem to have that cause and effect like Proverbs says. In fact, Ecclesiastes 9, let me just read you two verses that Solomon observes. He says in verse 11, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You can't control it. There's this randomness to life. And, and related to chance is this idea of sort of indifference and injustice, that life under the sun doesn't seem to even care if you're good or bad. Life doesn't reward you just because you're good or punish you just because you're bad. It seems that there's no justice in this life under the sun. If you read through Ecclesiastes, you'll see Solomon says, sometimes I see that the righteous are treated with evil and that the evil are treated with righteousness. That good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. It seems like there's no justice at all. And Solomon would then go on to say, and if time doesn't get you and chance doesn't get you and injustice and evil doesn't get you, then death finally will. 
Because Solomon also wants to tell you, at the end of the day, you'll be put in the ground like a beast of the field. And what happens after that, Solomon doesn't even want to comment on. Death is coming for all of us. And so Solomon says, life under the sun is smoke. It can't be controlled. It can't be channeled. You, you can't grab it. You can't figure it out. If, if it's thick enough, you can't even see through it. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. Hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. Now listen, you can feel it already in your heart. That is an unexpected unacceptable place to stop. We, we can't accept that conclusion. That can't be all there is. And so here's humanity's response to the hevel of this life. It's to try and fill something, to find something to give life meaning and purpose and satisfaction. You, you can't end in hevel, so something has to work. And so you're going to run to something under the sun to say, this is what life is about. This is what will satisfy. This is what will give me meaning. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes would simply say to you, I'm one step ahead of you because I have been there and done that too. In fact, Solomon would say, I have tried everything there is that humans give themselves to. I have experienced everything there is that humans want to experience. And I'm telling you, it doesn't work. In fact, you'll see a number of things repeated in Ecclesiastes. For example, pleasure. Without end, Solomon's had it. Wealth, without number, Solomon owned it. He'll talk about power. He'll talk about religion. He'll talk about friends. He'll talk about work. He'll talk about every category of thing that humanity tries to find meaning in. He'll go to the end of all of them with all the resources and all the might and all the ability that he has from his position of privilege. He will do it all. He will go after religion and friends and work and wealth and power and pleasure with all his might. Now, listen, you know how we always think the grass is greener on the other side? You always think that. If you're single, you wish, oh, if I could be married. If you're married, you go, oh, if I could have the freedom of being single. The grass is always greener on the other side. Well, Solomon would tell you, I own the lot on the other side. And I own your lot too. I own all the grass there is to own. And I'm telling you, it's burnt brown everywhere. There is no other side of the grass for Solomon. He had it all, did it all, experienced it all. Whatever he wanted, he did. Whatever he wanted, he had. He has a name that lasts to this day. Solomon has done everything you could hope to in a week, in a lifetime. Solomon's had it all, and at the end of everything, I think Solomon, after playing Pink Floyd, would put on U2 and then say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? I still haven't found it. This it that I'm looking for evades me. It's it's smoke. It's like chasing after the wind, verse 14 and 17. It's like striving to catch a breeze. I'm looking for it, but I haven't found it. And it always evades me. Let me read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. It's a great observation. Lewis says, most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely Something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. 
The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am speaking of what would ordinarily be called, I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in the first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. Do you hear that? Not the bad job you got stuck in. You could have the best job. Not the bad, hard marriage. The best marriage. And it will evade you. It's smoke. It's grasping for the wind. Let me read you one more quote from C.S. Lewis. Listen to this as well. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Meaning, he's saying, if there's some longing in you, it's because there's something that can match that longing. Some reality outside of you that can satisfy that longing. And then he says, a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Having had it all, he's saying there's something that nothing in this world can satisfy. And Lewis would say, that's because you need something from beyond this world. And friends, that's exactly where the preacher has wanted to take you all along. It's to show you there is a longing in your soul that the five senses can't satisfy. There's a longing in your soul that nothing you can see or touch or taste or smell or hear can satisfy. That's why one preacher named Matt Chandler, he puts it wonderfully, he says, that's why the message of Ecclesiastes is you need a sixth sense. Not the see dead people thing. You need a sixth sense. You need a sense called faith, which gives you, by the help of the Holy Spirit, an ability to see not just what's under the sun, but what's beyond the sun. You see, there's a sense that God, the Holy Spirit, gives to people, undeserving people, that helps them to see that there is something beyond the sun. There is more than to life under the sun. There is an answer to the hevel of life under the sun, but that answer comes from beyond the sun, namely even that there is someone beyond the sun. You see, Ecclesiastes is asking questions that the rest of the Bible is going to answer. And the Bible is going to tell us there is someone beyond the sun who controls time, who is outside of time, who is older than the sun. There is someone beyond the sun who rules over what appears random in life. There is someone beyond the sun who will judge in the last day the difference between good and evil and settle injustice forever. There is someone beyond the sun who has defeated even death itself. You see, the message of the Bible is this God from beyond the sun came unto this life under the sun. His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives you a way to see everything differently. Jesus gives you a lens, a sixth sense by which everything of this world can be seen. And so we would say, cheer up, preacher. 
Cheer up, preacher, because the sun coming up and going down is not meaningless and it's not vain, but rather by the sixth sense of faith, we would rejoice in the rising of the sun. You know why? Because by faith we know that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So the sun rising for us is not a source of depression. It means because the sun came up, so did new mercies from God. And as repetitious as the sun is, thanks be to God for the glorious repetition that there are new mercies to visit us this morning. When the sun comes up, we sing to the Lord because of his faithfulness, which can be counted on every morning. We would say, cheer up, preacher. Because though life seems random, there is someone from beyond the sun who has told us God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And so those things are not random incidents in your life. We would say, cheer up, preacher. Because while it may seem like injustice doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're good or you're evil, the very last sentence of Ecclesiastes... Chapter 12, the last verse says this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is someone from beyond the sun who will settle the score and turn out what is good and bad. And we would say, cheer up, preacher. Because though it seems under the sun like death is the final thing, By the sixth sense of faith, we know it will not have the last word. Amen to that. Because someone has come from beyond the sun and lived under the sun and was buried in the ground and rose again and has defeated death. And because he has defeated death, we would say, cheer up, preacher. When the preacher would say, what does man gain from all his toil under the sun? What gain is there? And the point is because death is going to wipe out the gain. Well, the rest of the Bible would answer, no. In fact, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. In fact, the very gain that death thought it could wipe out, death has now been transformed to be a servant to get me one step closer to my gain. It doesn't rule over me. It doesn't wipe out my gain. It leads me to my gain. For me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. Even that has been turned into a servant by the one beyond the sun. And so we would even say, listen, what gain is there to all of man's toil? It's meaningless. No, preacher. Cheer up, preacher. Because at the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul has spoken brilliantly about resurrection, He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, knowing that your work for the Lord, knowing that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It's not Hevel, because one has come from beyond the sun to turn it all around. Cheer up, preacher, we'd say. Listen, preacher, we'd say. Sure, life under the sun is Hevel, but there is someone beyond the sun, and he can transform the whole thing. And I think if the preacher heard you say that, I think he would smile and he would say, amen. That's what I was trying to get you to see. Let's pray together.